0: My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. A while back, the Korean Public Health Research took a poll of fourth to sixth grade students on what they would like to become when they grew up. What dreams did all of you have when you were young, and were you able to fulfill those dreams? If I think back to when I was in elementary school, most of my friends wanted to become the president, a general, or even a doctor. What do you think the children of today would say to this question? The results of the study from the year 2015 were very interesting. Let me go over some of the results. In fifth place, the children wanted to become a judge, a lawyer, or someone in the law field. This is not that different from when I was young. The fourth popular professions were doctor, nurse, pharmacist, or other professions in the health field. Those were the most popular professions when I was young, and these are now in fourth and fifth place. The third popular profession among the children in 2015 was surprisingly a chef. The researchers believed that this was due to many of the popular Korean food shows and the famous chefs that came on the show. In second place was a professor a teacher, or other professions in the education field. So what is the most popular profession among children in 2015? Is it being the president, politician, leader? No, the most popular profession among children in 2015 was either to be a famous sports player or a famous star on television. This result was very different from when I was a child. Was this answer that all of you were expecting? Where did these children get these dreams? Who implanted these kinds of dreams in their heads? This is something that we all must contemplate.
1: There's nothing worth more that will ever come close, nothing can compare. You're our living hope Your presence I've tasted and seen All the sweetest of loves Where my heart becomes free And my shame is under. Your presence, Lord.
0: introduce the poll about the future dreams that students have today. It's not to mock their dreams of being someone famous or even say that it is bad. It is to discuss about why these children are having these kinds of dreams for their future. Let's go over the first 3 most popular professions again. First, was to become a famous sports or even television star. Second, was to become a teacher or professor. And the third was to become a chef. There is a similarity between all three of these professions. What is the similarity? It is that these are types of people that the children see most in their lives. As the researchers said, the reason why being a chef came in third place was due to the many famous cooking shows on television. Because of these shows, many chefs became celebrities. This is how it is similar to the most popular profession of becoming a celebrity. The second popular profession was a teacher or professor. And this is someone that they see every day at school. In the end, the reason why the children pick the profession is because it is either the people they see when they turn on the TV or every day at school. If I think back, I believe I was like that as well. I thought about how wonderful it would be to spend time teaching children like my teacher. And that became my dream. Of course, not everyone dreams of being someone in the future just from who they see. From the whole research, 63% of the children chose the profession in the first, second, or third place. And 37% chose something else. What I'm trying to say is, that more than 60% of the children were influenced by what they saw every day. They want to become like the adults they see on TV, or adults that they see every day at school. This is something that is very normal and inevitable. Then we as Christian parents who live for Jesus should know how to teach our children to live their lives. What do you believe you are showing our future generation? What do you think our children of today are learning from you?
2: Praise to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ Our God and our King To Him we will sing In His great mercy He has given
0: Coming up next is sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is "Renovate," Part One, based on Haggai chapter one, verses one through five. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua.
3: Yeah, I, I think this is one of those books that maybe folks tend to look over, and uh, when I was thinking about preaching this book, I was reminded of a conversation that I had with a lady one time. I was actually, it was while I was here, there was a lady that came up to me, this was a while back, and she said, you know, I'm really confused as to why you keep on preaching through the Old Testament books. Because we do that, we'll preach through Old Testament and New Testament alike. And she says, why would you spend so much time, why would you waste so much time on the Old Testament when there are all those weird stories and really the good stuff's in the New Testament anyway? So, well, you know, that, that's a really good question, and seminary didn't really prepare me to answer that question, but I understand the heart of it, and I said, we well, you know that to be honest with you, that's a really good question, and, and, and here's why. I have a number of answers I could give you, but you probably don't want to hear the 10-point the pastor answer, so let me just give you one. I think that we should read the Bible in the same way that the Apostle Paul read the Bible, And you'll remember that the Apostle Paul, he wrote a lot of the New Testament, so if you're talking to a guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament about why it's important to read the Old Testament, then it sounds like a good place to start, right? And so Paul, if you look at him, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, which Malachi appropriately quoted before the service, uh, he tells us that all Scripture is literally God-breathed and profitable, every word of it, for teaching for rebuke, for correction, and the training in righteousness that the man or woman of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. Now catch this. When he says all Scripture is God breathed there, he is at least thinking of the Old Testament, including books like Haggai. And he says, Christian, listen, if you want to be faithful to God, you need books like Haggai. You need the Old Testament prophets, you need the Old Testament history books to understand who God is, because the same God that the people of Israel served is the same God that we serve. And if you want to understand the New Testament, then you need to know the Old Testament. So as we come to this book, uh, I believe that it is a perfect place to just pronounce and and, and just uh, scream aloud, we believe that all of the Bible is inspired by God. And we need to fix that in our minds as we consider uh, this one of the shortest books of the Bible, a minor prophet, not because it's less important than the major prophets. It's not like the minor leagues in baseball and the major leagues, right? Uh, It's minor because it's smaller. And so it's a smaller book. In fact, it just has uh, two chapters, a total of 38 verses, Uh, less verses than Isaiah has chapters. It's a very short book. And the whole time period that this book resides in is actually just four months, uh, beginning in August of 520 BC. In fact, uh, commentator Herbert Wolfe, uh, a guy who studies these books a lot, speaks of Haggai and he says, Haggai is one of the most minor of the minor prophets. Very small, insignificant. Indeed, one of the most despised by others. And yet, God breathed and profitable for you and me. So I'm excited that we're going to mine out of this short little book over the next couple of weeks what God has for us. And I hope that you're ready in your hearts for what God has to say to you. But I think if we're going to understand this book, I think that we need to set it in context. Uh, We need to understand a little bit of the background of what's going on in Israel to understand why this prophecy matters. And to do that, I'm going to carry you through a little bit of history of Israel. And for some of you, catch this. It's going to be review, and I know that. For others of you, this is going to be brand new. But just hang with me, because I think all of it's going to help you understand why this matters. Well, we'll start off as you think about Israel... Uh, what we know is is that god delivered israel out of egypt and then some years later god gave israel a king after his own heart a god loving king uh, what a great thing that is uh, they had a king who loved god king david who God made a covenant with and said, uh, just as Israel is my people, uh, you will be my king. I'm making a covenant with you as my king. I will be your God and you will be my king. And it's an everlasting covenant. I will not leave or forsake you. You're a unique kind of king. And God didn't allow David to build him a temple though. Even though David loved to worship God, he said, you are not the one that's going to be allowed to build a temple for me. That's for your son Solomon. And so Solomon, his son, got to build a temple for God. He got to build him a beautiful and glorious temple to worship God and to honor him. And this temple, of course, was built in Jerusalem of Judah, uh, that small people that David came from. It was the city of God where God said in this place, and this house, this temple, I will dwell with my people. I will live with you. In your presence, in your midst. But after Solomon, what we find is, is that Israel actually split, right? So you have the, the north, ten tribes, they split from the southern tribe of Judah. And so for the rest of their history, what we find is, they're actually in many ways enemies going back and forth between one another. Until 722 B.C., when Assyria swoops down out of the north, and conquers Israel. And then in 586, what we find is is that Babylon comes in and takes over the southern uh, country of, of Judah. And so what we have in this history of Israel is really a people who have turned to God, have a house of God, have God's king, and then they turn against God. And for the rest of their history, they have civil war, they have external war. They find all of a sudden everything that they found their identity in destroyed and wiped off the map along with the house of God. Now, if you're talking about a bad day, that's a bad day. If you're talking about an identity crisis, that was an identity crisis for the people of Israel and the people of God. So here we are in the book of Haggai, a book that is a prophecy that came 50 years later, when in 539 Cyrus of Persia came in and took over, defeated Babylon, took control of Jerusalem, And we find in Ezra 1 that the Holy Spirit actually inspired Cyrus, this Persian non-Christian king, to actually make an edict that says, I want you to go and to rebuild the temple of God. Now how crazy is that? A non-Christian says, I have been led by your God's spirit to tell you to go back and build God's house because God's coming back. He's going to be with you. And it's there that we are told that Zerubbabel led an envoy of exiles back to Judah, a small remnant of people from that great nation that used to be Israel. And they built immediately an altar on the site of Solomon's temple and reinstituted sacrifices as they prepared to rebuild the temple. But, but what we find is is that quickly enemies came in and prevented the work, but the enemies soon vanished. And what we find is, is that Darius of Persia, the third king from the Persian Empire that was over them, took over and returned stability to the land. Now here's the problem that Haggai is coming into. They've experienced, since those enemies attacked them, 16 years of peace. And yet nobody has gone back to work on the house of God, the temple. It's still left in utter disrepair. This centerpiece of their national identity, this centerpiece of their spiritual worship of God is gone, and for 16 years, they have ignored it. As Ezra tells us, it's at this point that God sent Haggai and Zechariah to remind God's people to get back to work on God's house. But make no mistake. As you read this book, this is not a book that is about bricks and mortar. That's not this book. Now, it'll talk about rebuilding a physical temple. But what the real issue at heart here is not a physical building. This book is about an Old Testament revival. It's about an awakening of the people of God. People who have become cold have become absolutely tired and asleep at the wheel of their spiritual lives, they are awakened here. And so what we find is a good Old Testament revival of God's people to their God. Now let me just ask you, what about you this morning? As you think about Israel, and you're thinking in your mind, how do they become distracted from this God who has made such powerful displays before them? I'm just wondering this morning, what about you? Could you maybe be distracted from God this morning as well? You know, we live in a world that is full of booby traps that seek to distract us from God. And the distractions, they are plenty. Just think about it. Just watch the news. And I watch the news now and I turn it on and I'm watching all these different channels about what's going on all over the world. And I'm trying to figure out, like, who's the worst sinner and who's guilty and who's going to die next and who's responsible. And I find myself emotionally just wanting to crawl up and curl up and ball up and get away from it all, right? And I'm distracted from a powerful God and I feel weak and unable to make any kind of a difference and how often does your phone beep, ring or vibrate for any of the half dozen social media accounts that you have that are telling you exactly what's going on with a thousand of your closest friends in a given moment you're distracted, you're thinking about it and then there's the next thing and then there's Netflix and relationships and work which not all are bad, but but all can, if not viewed rightly, distract us from God's powerful presence. Are you distracted this morning? We're all guilty and in danger of being distracted. And Haggai says in his book, God, this is the good news, God awakens his people to work with a vision of himself. And that's what God, I think, wants to do for us this morning. He wants to Awaken us to get to work for the glory of God with a fresh vision of Himself. With a fresh message that He has given from His Word. And so we're going to see this uh, throughout this book. Now, the first thing that we uh, need to do is we need to consider the problem that Haggai speaks of in verses 1-6. to We need to consider the problem. And the problem is that God's people are distracted. They're distracted. Now, let's read those first two verses again to give us... More context is what's going on here in this book. Uh, notice what Haggai says. He says, "In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came up by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest." Verse two. Thus says the Lord of hosts: These people say the time is not yet come to rebuild. The house of the Lord. Not time yet to rebuild the house. So here we have this, this Persian king Darius, and he's come in. He's reigning. Uh, We know the date is August 29th, 520 BC. They tell us right at the front. That's what that translates into. And when Haggai calls out, he speaks to two leaders at the very beginning of this book. Notice that he calls out a king and the high priest. He calls out a king, the king and the high priest. The king is Zerubbabel, who's called a, at this time, governor of Judah. In other words, not full king, not really full power. He is under the Persian king. So he's really just sort of a figurehead. He doesn't really have any kind of authority or power. He's not even a full-fledged king. It's kind of like a retakai, You know, he's not, doesn't have a real badge, doesn't have a real gun. And then he speaks to Joshua, who is the high priest. Now you remember Zerubbabel, the king comes from the line of David. Joshua comes from the high priestly line and they are the leaders of this people. But though they have these great titles, do not be distracted from the reality that these guys lived in. They must have felt so small. I mean, Haggai hand delivers a message from God to a priest without a temple and a king without a throne. The high the high God comes and speaks to them. And I'm guessing they felt insignificant before the people could not help them with the authorities over them, could not protect them. But even worse, I bet they forgot felt forgotten by God. Just think about it. They faced the civil wars and the wars with other nations. And now they probably feel a little bit more like mascots for the failure and the small people of God than that powerful king like David or or that great priest like Aaron. And just and just a side note, really important, they might have felt forgotten by God, but friends, what the Bible tells us is that God never forgets his people. God never forgets his people. But God's people, friends, they do forget him. We need to be aware of that. The fight to remember God is a fight for the good of our souls and eternal joy that starts today. And they needed to be reminded. Like the rest of the people, that God's people may have forgotten God, but God has not forgotten his people. They probably began to imagine that God was a small and weak God, just like they were a small and weak people. And they thought of God in this way when Haggai shows up with a message. But did you notice the name that God signs, he ascribes to this message that he sends to this weak and beaten people? You know, God has different names for himself that describe different aspects of his character and nature because he has many uh, attributes of who he is and he could have described himself in a lot of different ways here. But when he comes to this little people, through this little prophet, through a few words, he uses the title, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. He is the great, powerful God. A title that expresses that Israel's faithful God is himself all-powerful. Catch this. It is not that He is a God who has power. He is the all-powerful God who in Himself is power. He's not just strong. He is strength. That's what this title means. You can believe that this was a welcome message to this small people who felt so defeated and hopeless. But notice the problem in verse 2. The problem that these people have is they are saying that the time has, has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Just think about it. It's been 16 years since Cyrus sent Israel with provisions to build the temple. And sure, enemies initially distracted them from rebuilding the temple, which symbolized their identity as God's people. Uh, And we find here uh, that they did not obey God and rebuild God's house so that they could meet with God on God's terms. And you might be wondering, so what's going to happen next? Well, God tells us in verses 3-6. to This is what the words He speaks to His disobedient people. And you're thinking, okay, here's where He lays down the hammer. What does He say? Well, we see here that because Israelites are building their own houses, that's the reason that they haven't been building God's house. So he says, let me explain to you. He says in verse three, then, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Holy bag. Anybody seen a bag with holes in it? Anybody tried to like put water into a bag with holes in it? Does that work? It falls out, right? So God tells his people to consider their ways. In other words, God says their way of life says something about the way they view God. And friends, that's just as true today as it was then. The way, as we consider our ways, that we live our lives says something about the view of God that we have. If your life looks a certain way, it says something about the way you view God. If it looks another way, it says something about the way that you view God. Now, that's not bad advice, I don't think, for any of us. So let me just ask you this morning, if you were to look at your way of life, have you been distracted from paying attention to the distraction of your soul? In other words, have you not evaluated the fact, the reality, that your soul has been distracted by this magnificent vision of your great God? Have you taken account of your soul? You know, most of us wouldn't neglect paying attention to all kinds of things, like our checkbooks, right? Like we're going to pay attention to our checkbooks, see where our accounts are at. Uh, Most of us uh, would be really careful uh, during fantasy football season to make sure that we got the right players on our team at the right time. Uh, Some of us can't go 10 minutes without checking Facebook, Instagram, or whatever. And, And we are so easily distracted from actually paying attention and taking account of what's most important being our souls created by God in His image. And so here, we find that we have a people who have been distracted from the work that is before them. They're probably doing a lot of good things, but have been distracted from the most important thing. So, you know, this tells us that our way of life will tell us if we suffer from distraction. Now, if you suffer from distraction, I, I suffer from distraction really badly. I think I might have ADD or something. I think that's a real thing. And I, I struggle with being distracted uh, in the same way that like Doug the dog from the movie Up. Have you all ever seen that? It's like a talking dog, and uh, it's amazing that he can talk, but in the middle, all of a sudden, uh, he's speaking, and you're like, wow, this dog can talk, and all of a sudden, he's like, squirrel, right? Completely gets distracted and gives voice to it. And, and maybe my sermons feel that way sometime, and that's because that's the way my mind works. But you 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 get distracted, right, by life. Like you're trying to think out something important, and then all of a sudden, it's like, squirrel, my job. Or maybe in your prayer time, your prayer time is just a giant squirrel experience. Lord, I praise you because you are, oh man, i got to take the laundry out. And God, I want to thank you because of the way you answered this. Oh, wait a minute, I forgot to ask for, have I taken the car in to get the oil changed? Right? I just got distracted from the glory of God by an oil change. I mean, that's just the way we are. We're easily distracted. We're distracted from God and who He is by all sorts of things. Well, the same way, we don't need to get distracted from God. We don't need to be distracted from the things that are more important. See, we lose sight of ourselves as well when we lose sight of God. And If you really want to care for your soul, don't lose sight of God. Because when we lose sight of our, our, of God, our desires become greater, but we become smaller along with our view of God becoming smaller, right? Our needs become God and God no longer has a voice in our lives. We shrink and God shrinks and we become small minded and unable to do much good for others when we are fixated on more of this world or more of our selfish desires than what God has made us for, which is something much, much bigger. It's Himself and the life that He's made us for. And what's distracted Israel from God's house? Well, some have said that they're distracted because they are too poor, and that's what Haggai's speaking of. Some say they're too poor, but I don't sense that that's the picture that Haggai draws for us here. See, Israel's efforts aren't squelched or stopped by being poor, they're diverted by their unquenchable thirst for more. That's what's got them distracted. That commentator Bruce Walkie said this way. He said this was the problem they had. They had good, but the good life eluded them. They were not hungry, but neither were they satisfied. They were not. They were dressed, but they were not comfortable. See, they had sowed. They had seed to sow. Food to eat, wine to drink, clothes to wear, but never enough of any of those. And they're too preoccupied with renovating their own homes to rebuild the house of God. God's people may have thought that God had forgotten them, but the reality is, the real reality for them, and maybe for you and me today, sometimes is that they had forgotten God. See, they sought satisfaction apart from God, and it always left them hungrier. Are you hungrier today? Or do you find your ambition and your restlessness of your heart? Or are, you, are you desirous? Or are you thirsty? Could it be that maybe today the reason that you have those unmet desires is because you're just looking in the wrong place like Israel was? Sounds eerily similar to what Jesus said to His people on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.33 where He said, Seek ye first the Kingdom of God and His righteousness and He promises us that all of these things will be added unto you. Now what are these things that Jesus is talking about? He's talking about food to feed you and clothes to cover you and to care for you. He says God does that. Trust Him for it. Seek His kingdom. Make that the main priority. Worry about God's house and God's kingdom. Of course, for Jesus, uh, He tells us that there is something more that we have been made for then food that perishes and clothes that are eaten by moths. And Israel, they're a good reminder for us. They lost an ambition for God's kingdom. They lost an ambition and a desire for God's righteousness and a future that is incredibly bright for the short-sighted pursuit of the happiness that this world could afford them. And he's saying, Haggai's saying, you're settling for too little. You have been made for much more. Do you think that might apply to you and me?
1: Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store
0: now. Following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount.
4: Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston with the Sermon on the Mount teaching series. During our last program, we learned about Jesus' sermon about prayer. Jesus told us about two types of prayer that we as Christians should not follow. The first are prayers like the hypocrites who only prayed to be noticed by others, and the second are like Gentiles who prayed in meaningless repetition. Jesus told us not to follow these examples of prayers and pray in our inner rooms in secret to God. Jesus also told us that God already knows all that we need and all that we will ask for in prayer. Jesus teaches us how to pray correctly after giving his sermon about prayers, and today we will be learning about the right way to pray through his sermon. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15 says, Pray then in this way Our Father who is in heaven hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. What we know today as the Lord's Prayer is the prayer that Jesus teaches as the correct way to pray in verse 9. He teaches us how and what to pray about after he tells us not to follow the prayers of the hypocrites and the Gentiles. Jesus is giving us a sample of how a right prayer to God should be like we must follow the guidelines given to us by Jesus, following the form and contents of the prayer, also knowing the priority of the prayer as well. If you look at the prayer as a whole, the first half is three prayers about God and the second half is three prayers about ourselves. If you look at the order of the prayer, we must pray about God first and then ask for our needs after. Praying about God first should be a priority to praying for our needs. Then who is this God that we are praying about? In verse 9, Jesus tells us to call God our Father who is in heaven. Jesus uses the word your heavenly Father many times throughout his sermon on the mount. The God that we are praying to is the God who knows all about us, everything that we need and takes care of everything for us. The reason why we are able to call God our Father is through Jesus. As it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, we are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The reason why we are able to pray to God is because God is like a father to us, listening to his children's needs and wants. When we pray, we must know the God that we are praying to. We must confess and say, our Father who is in heaven. Let's study the first three prayers about God. The first is for God's name to be holy. God's name describes God's character in God himself. God is different from anyone else and is considered the highest and holiest of all. Our Holy Father, who has made children of us, deserves to have his name be holy and glorified. The second prayer about God is for his heavenly kingdom to come. What do we mean by God's kingdom? God's kingdom means God's rule or governance. Those who do not live by the world's values and their own rules, but live through Jesus Christ and God's rules, are ones that will be ruled under God in his kingdom. We must seek God's kingdom that began with Jesus Christ and seek to fulfill that kingdom with Jesus' return. The third prayer is about God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Just as God's will is fulfilled in heaven, we must pray that God's will be fulfilled through all the creatures of the world. Let's now look at the three prayers about ourselves. One important thing about these prayers is that it doesn't say the word I. It uses the word us. Our prayers should not be about only ourselves, but about all our brothers and sisters who believe in Jesus, praying for their daily lives, forgiveness, and spiritual growth. The first prayer about us is in verse 11 that says, Give us this day our daily bread. Exodus chapter 16 is a story about the Israelites who were living in the wilderness and were given all the quail to eat by God. The Israelites were angry with Moses that they did not have any food and started to talk about the days in Egypt when they had meat and bread. God saw this and said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. God's people of Israel, while living in the wilderness, lived on the daily portion of food that God provided for them every day. For this reason, we must pray every day to thank God for our daily food and needs that he provides for us every day. This is a way to show our faith in God, who knows all of our physical and spiritual needs. It is also a way to show that we are not living our lives only by our ability, but surrendering our lives to God, who knows all our needs and everything about us. The second prayer about us is, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is not saying that because we forgive those who sin against us, God in return forgives all our sins. Our sins are already forgiven by God's grace. So it doesn't mean that we only receive forgiveness from God when we forgive others. It means that since we had our sins forgiven by the grace of God, we should forgive others that sin against us. This is because God forgave us for a greater sin. If we ask God to forgive us for all our sins, it does not make sense that we do not forgive others who sin against us. When we have hatred and resentment and are not able to forgive others, it is not right to ask God to forgive our sins. Jesus explains this in verse 14 and 15 and says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive our transgressions. Now let's take a look at the third prayer about us. It says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The temptation mentioned in this prayer is not a test from God to see how strong our faith is, but temptation from Satan to take us away from God. Satan is constantly tempting us, just like he tempted Adam to go against God. We always need God in our lives to go against Satan. We are not able to win over Satan on our own. That is why we need to pray, lead us not into temptations of Satan, and deliver us from all the evil. After the third prayer, it says, For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. This is a way of blessing God and glorifying Him, and is called a benediction. There is always a benediction to bless God at the end of Jewish prayers. The benediction at the end of verse 13 was not part of the original Greek manuscript, but was added in later. That is why it is missing in some versions of the Bible, and why the benediction is in parentheses. I am sure that all of you have the Lord's Prayer, the way that Jesus taught us to pray, memorized. If we pray this prayer at the end of meetings and service, memorized with no meaning behind it, then it goes against what Jesus has taught us. If we pray for God in his kingdom, for our physical and spiritual needs only with our mouths, yet live our lives completely different, then we cannot call that prayer. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we are saying, we believe your name to be holy God. Your kingdom come means that we will surrender our lives to God and live under his rule. When we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, We are saying, God, I am going to live my life according to you. Give us this day our daily bread means that we will live by whatever God provides for us and live through him always. When we pray, forgive us our debts, we are saying that we will forgive those who sin against us. Jesus said, pray then in this way and taught us how to pray. I hope that you will follow Jesus' words, what we learned today, and pray in the right way daily. In the next lesson, we will be learning Jesus' sermon about fasting. I thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great week.
0: Are pure. It is our job as adults to plant and nurture what is right into those pure hearts. When children grow without knowing Jesus, it is our fault for not teaching them to have Jesus in their hearts. As we learn from the research poll, they want to become like the people they see every day. It is our job to show these children the right things to follow. One can also see this as an opportunity. We here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries are trying to instill Jesus into the hearts of our children through the grace of God in our children's program. We're doing this work because we know how happy God will be to see our children grow up as children of God. We ask that you pray for our program. This program is not only for the children. It is geared towards parents who want to teach their children to live according to Jesus' words. There are no parents out there that want to teach the words of God to their children without knowing the words of God themselves. When parents do not believe in God fully, they do not want their children to fall too deep into the words of the Bible. I believe that parents who want their children to live according to the will of God in the scary world out there today are true Christians themselves. That is why it is our goal to create a program that is geared towards instilling the faith in Jesus early on. It is our hope to help children to grow in their faith and protect it, like Daniel and his three friends did in today's harsh world. There is a series called, Let's Read the Bible, in the children's program. This is part of the program where our children listeners actually read the scriptures it can be boring if you just listen to this program, but if you actually open up the Bible with your children and read through the verses together, you will both fall into the words of the Bible together. Some of you may ask, why do we have a program where you just read the Bible? It is because we believe in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, which says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. When our children listen to the scriptures in the Bible, they are able to read along and live with those words inside of them that will lead to their salvation. God's words have potential and ability. We all have experienced this. It is through those words that we have our salvation. We have a duty to pass this on to our future generations. We want many of our listeners' children to participate in our program let's read the Bible. Children get very excited when they hear their own voices on the program. It is through this program that children can learn to like reading the Bible and infuse this into their daily lives. We will like children between first and sixth grade to read for us. And the process of recording is very simple. All you need is your smartphone because it contains recording capabilities. You just need to be in a quiet setting where you can record your child reading the Bible and send us that file by email. If you have any questions, you can call our office at 602-866-8999 and we can tell you exactly how to record and send us the file. What we need most is prayers from all of you for our future generations. It is not money, power, or honor that we can leave to our children but only the words of eternal life. Please pray for our children that they become like Daniel, having never-ending faith in a harsh world like today. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. Have a wonderful week, and I hope to meet all of you again next week. Until then, God bless.